Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, welcome on to a very special Dunked On. And uh, if you've not yet subscribed to Dunked On Prime, since this is on the public feed, uh, I highly suggest you do too. Or uh, ask for it for Christmas or give it to someone for Christmas. Uh, Then you can get five days a week uh, of Danny LaRue and me, plus every Hollinger and Duncan, plus uh, Dan Feldman in your inbox uh, every day, catching up uh, on the latest news around the league. And today, I teased this yesterday that we were going to have a special guest. And the reason I wanted to have this gentleman on, and I don't know why I'm talking like it's some big surprise who it is, because it's right there in the title, and you clicked on it as a result. But Jared Dubin is at the forefront to me of what's going on in the NBA uh, with uh, the work that you're doing. Jared, first of all, hello. And secondly, uh, tell us uh, about what you've been working on uh, the last uh, uh, year and a half or so. Am I right about that? Uh, yeah. First of all, hello. Thank you for for having me. I appreciate you saying that. Um, I sort of relaunched, I guess, my Substack uh, toward the end of last season when 538 shut down its sports vertical because I had nowhere left to write about basketball. I was doing almost all of my NBA writing there because as they sort of hemorrhaged staffers over the last couple of years or so, I had basically been like the longest tenured and most frequent basketball writer there. So I wound up doing a lot of the stuff that had typically fallen to guys like Chris Herring before me. So when that shut down, I didn't have anywhere left. And I sort of relaunched last night in basketball which is my Substack. It's just www.lastnightinbasketball.com. And I tend to focus mostly, not exclusively, but mostly on what actually happens on the court. What? Because, what? Wait, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> I know it's, 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 it's crazy, but you know, so much of basketball discussion is about like pretty much everything else. And when I first got into this, I was just really interested in like the mechanics of plays and what players specifically do and don't do well and why certain things do and don't work. And, you know, I, I played when I, when I was younger and that's just kind of the way that I got into things. And then I got into more analytical things and more storyline things after that, just by following the league so closely. So what I do is sort of the way I got into basketball in the first place. And basically on uh, every Wednesday, I will do just sort of like a clipping of, I just call it three things I noticed on league pass. And it's, you know, three players or three teams just, you know, last week I did something on Derek white, where he just completely shut down the Knicks offense with his off the ball defense, just snaking into passing lanes and jumping post-ups from behind 
and you know Donovan Mitchell splitting defenders with spin moves or crossovers or you know even splitting defenders going after an offensive rebound and then it was you know Jabari Smith playing a lot better recently he's got a double double over the last 10 games you know even in games where his shot isn't falling his his activity level is really high and he's making things happen those kind of things I will do you know once a week on Wednesdays then on Fridays I do sort of a deep dive breakdown into you know a specific player or team last week I did Joel Embiid's improved passing this year, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Tomorrow, I've got something going up on Julius Randle. I did something on the way Porzingis has changed the Celtics offense earlier this season. And then, uh, you know, once a week, I will also sort of do a, like, why is this happening? What is happening here? I dug into the Cavs offense. I dug into, you know, which teams actually use their best free throw shooters to take their technical foul free throws. It's like all kinds of weird stuff like that. So... Again, it's just whatever's happening on the court, that's the kind of stuff that actually interests me, and that's the kind of stuff that I like to write about and highlight with videos. That's you know sort of the long-winded way of describing what should be. I should have a shorter answer than that. No, well, uh, there's never been a, an answer that was too long for uh, the Dunked On NBA Basketball podcast, <laughs> so you are absolutely in the right point. <laughs> well, and I'm glad that you you put those bonafides out there because that's what we wanted to have you on to talk about. I, I realized that uh, having you on every year to talk about this Knicks while uh you do follow the team quite passionately was uh, a far too limited use uh, of your knowledge and so what we're going to talk about today is everything new that we're seeing over the last year over the last couple of years it could be trends in teams it could be trends in play calls just uh, all the things doesn't nothing is really too minute to talk about so i have a list you have a list we shared it and i will give you first crack of a new trend in nba basketball that you have noticed over the last uh i guess we'll say year and a half since you've been doing last night basketball uh yeah i mean i i I think i focused all of mine on this particular season although some of them have slipped into from previous seasons but i I guess we could just start with Embiid's passing since i already mentioned it um you know he's at a career high in assists by far he set his career high the last two years with 4.2 this year he's like over six and a half assists per game and the thing that i focused on in the video from last week was how much better he's dealing with double teams which in the past Nobody double-teamed Embiid more often than the Nick Nurse-coached Toronto Raptors. They doubled him on like 33% of his post-ups, which was way more than any other team and way more than the league average team. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he's dealing with those much better now that he's being coached by the coach who did that to him more often than anyone else. No, that that's a, a great point. And the way that they've been using him a lot is not only are they not posting him up as much, but they've got him more in the middle of the floor. And he, he kind of made the evolution, I think it, maybe you'd say mostly last year, to operating more from the nail in general. And that was, you know, with James Harden, but everything was kind of static there. And now Nick Nurse has evolved to letting Joel be the playmaker, having him be able to switch sides of the floor, running screening actions on both sides of the floor. And most importantly, then a more unpredictable action with Tyrese Maxey. Tyrese Maxey isn't, you know, the greatest like pick and roll technician in terms of like his handle, getting to spots, making every read perfectly. But what he can do is he could just run and he's really quick and he's starting to develop uh, that 
hand back chemistry with Embiid and that in the end particularly because you might think oh well you know Maxi's really fast but like is that really that useful in the half court but when he doesn't have the ball and he can sprint it is and so I, I think that's a great point that Nurse doubled Embiid and like when you say 33% that's like he catches the ball and the double team is there like it's not okay he'll take a couple of dribbles he gets in the lane then maybe we send the help that's like straight up double and when you've got you know th- four other guys just standing on the other side of the floor it's kind of difficult to make the pass Uh, whereas when you're in the center of the floor it's just so much harder to bring that help to load the defense up when there's action occurring all over the floor so yeah i mean mean, that is to me one of the biggest strategic innovations even you know and we're seeing that with a lot of other teams too and the nuggets uh, were the the, uh at at the forefront of that with Jokic. but I, i think like just realizing how much harder players like that are to deal with when there's so much more going on is a great trend yeah, for sure. And then, you know, you mentioned, obviously, with Jokic, that was one of the big differences, I think, between Embiid and some of the, you know, the great offensive big men in the league was just they were just such better playmakers than he was over the last few years. Obviously, he's not on Jokic's level, but putting him in the middle of the floor, like you said, and allowing him to be, you know, just as much of a connector piece between both sides of the offense as he is a hub down on the block has been really good, both for him and his, and his numbers and just for getting everybody else involved it's so much easier to spot those doubles when you're in the middle of the court and you have so many more options of where to go with the ball and then i think especially stationing him there like you mentioned with maxi he's not necessarily a guy you're going to put at the top of the floor run 50 60 pick and rolls a game when you get him that head start and he's sprinting into a dribble handoff nobody keeps up with him he's just way too fast for teams to deal with that and they've gotten like so adventurous with the way they execute that stuff whether it's the handback things you mentioned or you know Embiid has been getting like really creative with the way that he gets maxi the ball like he'll throw the ball like drop it behind his back and set a screen or he'll throw it between his legs to give maxi a running start and set a screen because when you just hand the ball off on the outside, like right next to you, the defender is going to follow around on the outside. When you throw it between your legs or when you drop it behind their back, the defender is going to try to follow the ball and they're going to run into you or they're going to try to run and give Maxi so much more room when they try to, you know, shoot underneath the gap as opposed to coming over the top. And it just, it makes things so much easier for Maxi when they come off. I can't remember who wrote a story about it either last week or the week before where Embiid had talked about how he was never going to find dribble handoff chemistry with anybody like he had with JJ Redick, but he's getting there with Maxi. And I thought that was a really good point and makes, you know, they're not all that similar as players, except insofar as they're both really good shooters. But the way that they're working together, uh, Embiid and Maxi and Embiid and Redick sort of is reminiscent of each other, I think. Yeah, I think Maxi, like they should eventually be able to have better chemistry because Maxi can do so many more things as far as attacking the basket. Like JJ Redick, you weren't really going to do a handoff with him at the top of the floor or like, you know, a little like dribble pitch action at the because he, he wasn't going to get downhill. Like it was mostly JJ popping out with the Joel on the left wing and then JJ trying to turn the corner and, and get to his, that jumper going right was kind of the main uh, basis uh, for that. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets. 
from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfit of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace using our capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right. So, here's I'm going to go with a few kind of smaller things we don't need to talk about. Well, actually, no. The first thing I want to talk about is how how teams are trying to defend this stuff. And I think there's kind of two approaches that we've seen, right? There's... For some teams, like and particularly with the Kings, we saw it with the Warriors where they felt like they had a big who could kind of wait at the rim and they're just going to try to topside everything as much as they could, take away the back door. That's sort of the traditional way of dealing with the handoff game. You see teams who aren't going to switch to that against golden state with joel obviously or Jokic, that doesn't work because if you're not up on them they'll either shoot it or get a running start at you and uh, Jokic will hit a floater and beat will just go right into you for a foul so you can't you, you really have to get more pressure and so one thing that i i talked to a coach about last year is you were talking about sort of that like the between the legs stuff like sabonis will do this thing where he almost just like drops the ball off and then he'll move to go screen the guy once he's let go of the ball because otherwise if he did that it would be a travel if he still had the ball and so this coach is like well what we try to do is we just emphasize like crazy pressure on that guy so he's not as comfortable moving he's not as comfortable making the handoff you can get your hand in there a little bit as well disrupt it get a couple of turnovers uh and then of course the antidote to that is the like fake handoff qb keeper which has made uh, a ton of uh you know i mean that's probably been around for like five years but that becomes even more of a thing actually maybe what we could talk about as uh, a good compliment to that is you've noted you had this one that we're seeing way more in terms of slipped and rejected screens which is almost kind of the same thing as that qb keeper play except you know the guy has the ball as opposed to the uh the ball handler in a normal pick and roll has the ball yeah absolutely um i think that the fake handoff stuff a lot of times over the last few years you know we would see it with the big guy where the, the shooter comes around and then he'll fake the handoff and then maybe hand it off on the other side or not do that and sort of drive to the basket. I, I think one way we're seeing it even more this year is with, you know, a guard will look like he's setting up like that pistol action with a guy coming up from the corner and then he hands it off and comes around the screen. And that guy just fakes that handoff and drives to the rim. I've seen that uh, Jalen Brunson has done that like 10 or 11 different times this year where they have like Barrett coming up from the corner or quickly coming up from the corner and it looks like they're going to get a handoff 
which they've done like a hundred times. And then Brunson will just, you know, they, they usually do it on the right side because it's, you don't expect it from Brunson coming on the right side of the court. And he'll just fake that and drive to the rim with the right and sort of finish with the inside hand. And then I think that's a good comparison that you made with the, the slipped and rejected screens. Like, I got the numbers from second spectrum. It doesn't seem like a ton, but in 2013, 14, 10% of picks were slipped this year. It's 15%. So in a decade, they've gone up by 50%. Essentially there's, you know, 50% more slipped screens. Some of that coincides with the increased use of guards as screeners, which I wrote about a couple of years ago, where it was like the Clippers were running like something like 40% of their screens with guards as the screeners. Cause they were just having Kawhi hunt mismatches, but you see it with so many teams now where they use a shooter or, you know, they got two ball handlers in the game and they want to have them screen for each other to get sort of an advantage. And those guys traditionally are not screen setters and they're most of the time not going to roll to the rim. And if you can just set one of those, you know, kind of ghost screens where it's like, you're not even really setting a screen and you're just running, slowing down a little bit and then popping out to the perimeter. It, uh, it, it works really well. And I do think it's sort of a cousin with the fake handoff kind of stuff. It's, it just changes which guy is doing the faking. And as we talk about this too, I, I think, and that worked, I really arose a lot because of the rise of switching defenses. And so you're like, well, okay, if this, if they're going to switch, we're not going to get the advantage. So you slip out of there quickly before the guy can switch on to you. And uh, that's how you get the advantage there. Then you would see teams say, okay, we're going to switch at the point of attack. But then, you know, you would see the Rockets do this against the Rudy Gobert Jazz, for example. All right, we're going to switch at the point of attack, but then we're also going to actually bring a guy over to deal with the roll man in a more traditional fashion. But because we kept the guy out there at the point of attack with the switch, we didn't let him get penetration. Then that's just a quick tag and you can get back to your man. And a lot of teams aren't going to be able to throw it to the corner uh, off of that switch uh, up top. So, so that was a, an interesting battleground. And, you know, you had like in transition, like you're talking about, Etwan Moore was kind of the first guy under Alvin Gentry. I noticed as a guard to really do like that quick slip to the rim in transition, which works great when the bigs aren't back yet. And that guy can just get a quick layup. So we're seeing a, a lot of changes there. And then I think the next kind of evolution, right? Like we saw this, uh, it stuck out to me the most in that Bucks Pacers game uh, in the in-season tournament where the, like a lot of times guys aren't necessarily making contact on the screen. I don't know if you'd call what Miles Turner was doing in that game a slip, but a lot of time the the center or, or if it's a guard setting the screen, he's only almost there to just make the guy turn his head or get the screen called out. And then the guy at the point of attack just beats him anyway. And so then the whoever's setting the screen can get out of his role so early. And then you've got basically that two on one, but you also have the big ahead of the guard. And so that to me, like is a, I think why maybe we're seeing more teams put two on the ball early on in, in possessions and B uh, why uh, I think point of attack defense is kind of making a comeback. Switching isn't as much in vogue anymore. And if you're a team like the Bucks, okay, your guy's just going to get beat uh, when, you know, uh, a screener enters the building, <laughs> right? Like, whereas if you have good of a point of attack defense, you actually force the guy to set a real screen. And then, yeah, he, the guy may come off the screen after that, but now you're kind of like right there on his back. He's got to snake the pick and roll. The big, if he's in a drop coverage, can stay in position. He doesn't have to worry about the roll man as early. He can kind of get up, blunt the, the force of the initial drive, let his man get back in front and then still get back in front of the roll man. So it all goes back to what's happening at the point of attack. And there's just so much interesting stuff that's evolved there over the last five years. And I think even over the last two years in particular. Yeah, there are now guys that will come up 
and like they'll be in the area where you would be to set a screen and they will sort of stand there like they are setting a screen, but they're like three feet away from the defender that they're supposed to be screening and just sort of standing in that spot and basically telling the defense, like, you have to make a decision. Are you treating this as a screen or are you not treating this as a screen? Are you just going to play the ball handler straight up? Or are you going to send a second guy at him? Or are you going to switch? And if they don't decide, it sort of gives the ball handler free reign to figure out how he's going to attack it. And I think we've seen that a couple times with Indiana where Turner will just sort of stand like at the top of the three-point line and Halliburton is, you know, four or five feet beyond that. And if the defender's not all the way up on him, then Halliburton can run him into the screener. If he is all the way up, then he can, you know, veer one side or the other. And especially if he's dropping back and they're like going to try to switch he can just pull up from behind where that screen is if they they don't get that switch there in time. And I do, I do think it is, this is, I guess this actually plays into one of the things that I had. So I could just go yeah, on yeah. to that one where actions are moving farther out from the rim. And so are NBA defenses, like the pickup point of where you're running your stuff in the half court. This is something that I noticed with Damian Lillard a few years ago where the Blazers were just running his pick and rolls so far from the basket. And it was because they opposing defenses were sending multiple defenders at him and sort of blitzing him. And he obviously has range that goes out to, you know, 30 or so feet. So they just kept moving the action higher on the court. And I actually got the numbers on it from second spectrum, whenever this was two or three years ago. And it was like, yeah, he's running the farthest pick and rolls of anybody in the NBA. And now you're seeing it with more and more, players that have this range and are able to see these passes from higher up on the floor and that's causing defenses to move farther out and you're having so much more of the action played from you know the the timeline to the foul line or from the timeline up and that's sort of opening up the areas of the court that teams actually want to get to you know the 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 lower paint or the corners or things like that yeah and you can almost sort of some of these actions create a fast break in the half court just by setting a screen at half court and then hey if no one's in front of you uh, all of a sudden uh, at half court like now you can get downhill and you really cause problems uh, for the defense with that attack and it's really a vexing conundrum for the defense because with a Lillard with a Curry you don't ever want want to get separation from the guy's body as they're bringing the ball up court because you may never get it back at that point like they you just they can duck behind a screen then they can pull it from anywhere so you want to stay attached to him but then you're also leaving yourself vulnerable to getting screened at, at half court we saw that actually the bucks have set uh, with Giannis part of why he's been so successful against the Pacers is they don't have anyone to guard him but another reason is that they'll try to pressure him up full court so they'll just set a screen with the big so high up they're not you're not going to double team him at half court and so then he's coming downhill like against a, a Pacers defense that can't deal with him you know we've seen that a, a lot of times particularly when Obi Toppin has been guarding Giannis so uh that's uh it's definitely something that's really difficult to deal with um let me I'm, I'm gonna try to throw out a few kind of smaller things here this is one that I've seen and I think actually more players should do this there, there's been a point of education and this is kind of ties in with what we were talking about with the screens where if you start your role as the big man and the guy guarding the screener goes under and you roll into him as he's trying to go under that is now an offensive foul so uh, that's something that's been 
emphasized by the officials the last couple of years and so that's another reason i think why we're seeing kind of more of this ghost screening action but then another counter to that has been and, and same thing with like kind of that pistol action too we've seen some of the cagier guys you know let's say on that pistol action like you're talking about jalen brunson's on the right wing and uh he, he looks to hand off to like an rj barrett and usually teams will switch that well generally jalen brunson if he's bringing the ball up and handing off he's not going to come to a full stop there right like you would you would have to do to set a screen so i think what guys are starting to do is if someone does that kind of handoff when they're just in motion to just pitch it back just run into the guy intentionally like if he's still moving you might say like oh you know i'm not even really close to the guy but especially if you're beat just run into the guy who's still moving and get a moving screen on him like you see that a lot but especially if guys try to go under as well like if you can find a time where a guy is quote-unquote setting a screen even though it's like way out on the floor or something they're just pitching it back you can easily get an offensive foul there uh and technically maybe it should be an offensive foul because they they are creating an advantage by doing that pitch back and still moving so if the guy hasn't actually come to a stop when he's doing the handoff just slam into him get an offensive foul i think some of the smarter guys have started doing that uh ironically I don't think anybody does that more than Jalen. Yeah, Boston. I uh, I um, couldn't figure out a way to <laughs> weave that in uh, as as we thought about that. Yeah, with him as the offensive player, he would be more the defensive player, and that and then he would uh, get hit in the mouth, obviously, at that point too. He, he and he and Yusuf Yeah, I believe good. he leads the league in. Uh, I believe he leads the league in offensive fouls drawn. Yeah. And uh, one of the guys from uh, Nick's film school, Ben Ritholtz, like copies uh, or not copies. He finds all of these and put, posts them on Twitter, and he calls it getting Brunsund. <laughs> <laughs> like 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 Brunson, but like you're getting sunned. And I mean, I lost count of how many times he's done it this year. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, a couple other small ones. Uh, I think uh, subbing in overtime. Some coaches actually are like, I think who are at the forefront are starting to do that. Particularly, you're not going to take out one of your two best players, but when you've kind of got an equal selection of role players, a lot of coaches like, and particularly too, a lot of coaches will be like, well, okay, whoever like got us back in the game, we're just going to roll with them, uh, you know, sink or swim, no matter whether they've been in the game for 18 straight minutes or not. And, you know, Mark Dignall, I think is the one I've seen do this the most, just be like, hey, at the start of overtime we're gonna we got five minutes here that's a long time we're gonna throw some other guys in particularly because at the start of overtime that is a grueling stretch a lot of times same thing with like that period from under three minutes to maybe about 30 seconds left when the coaches don't want to call too many timeouts usually you'll have like you know to play two minutes three minutes consecutively of crunch time basketball is absolutely exhausting so to be able to get fresh guys in at least for that portion it can be a real advantage I've never understood why more coaches don't do this. Like just because you end the game a particular way doesn't mean that you have to play, you know, the rest of overtime or any of overtime that way. Like you should, you're essentially starting a game, a five minute game 
tied. So just put whichever five guys out there you think give you the best chance to win in that particular matchup. It doesn't necessarily have to be the five guys that were on the court at the end of regulation, especially if, like you've said, they played, you know, a bunch of consecutive minutes. Like a lot of times you'll have, you know, whoever the sixth man is will come in with, you know, whatever it is, four or five minutes left in the third quarter. They might play the rest of the game, 15, 16, 17 consecutive minutes. I'm starting to feel like you watch a lot of Knicks, Jared. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, it's hard. I mean, you can look at that, like with the heat too, like when hero was coming off the bench and he would come in at, you know, the, the six minute mark of the third quarter and then play the rest of the way. Like if you go to overtime, all of a sudden you're asking him to play 21, 26, whatever consecutive minutes. It's really hard, you know, even for the, you know, the best conditioned athletes in the world, like it's just, it's a lot. And if you can get someone in there who's fresher than the other team or who gives you a little bit of a different look than what you had toward the end of regulation, like every small little bit makes a difference. And if you can win a minute or two minutes by two points instead of one point or pull even instead of losing by three, like that could be the difference in the game. All right. So yeah, let's, let's hit on a couple. Do you have any other kind of just like uh, player observations uh, that, that you wanted to hit on just like little things that you've noticed we can do as some quick hitters? Yeah, I've got Evan Mobley absolutely refusing to shoot. Um, he's taken 10 threes all year. His, the share of his field goals that are short and mid range has gone way down and it's sort of strangling the Cavs offense when they have him and Allen on the court together because you now have not just one big guy but two big guys that are basically non-threats outside you know not just the paint but like the immediate area of the rim and you know he does a lot of worthy things offensively but the fact that both of them are now non-shooters when you know earlier in his career he would take mid-rangers and he would take some threes like he's averaging half a three per game and i think it's you know like 0.6 per 36 minutes or something like that and like when you already have jared allen out there that's just like unacceptable for mobley like he needs to be willing to shoot the ball yeah well maybe he just can't uh now i will say in his defense that he's playing more center this year than he ever has because uh we've uh, jared allen was out to start the year and they've just had uh, various injuries they've been staggering a little bit more playing them with uh, niang as well and they have just generally had more shooting on the floor than they've had in the past but i mean i agree it is kind of tough there and it's also tough because now the spacing is so compacted when teams put two on the ball one of their ball handlers and mobley is coming downhill i mean you saw it in the Knicks series last year that the two on one with Mobley and Jared Allen versus a big like if Mobley can't like hit a floater in that scenario he's not even very good at like you know taking a euro step around the big man uh he's not very good at force because he doesn't have the ability to make that shot he doesn't force the big man to come out like he's not going to necessarily he's like a quick jumper but he's not going to just go up and dunk on somebody from the dotted line either so like that two-on-one with him and Jared Allen isn't as successful as it should be and so teams are willing to put them into that situation and kind of live with the the results to take it out of the hands of a Garland or a Mitchell. It causes even more problems to me like when Allen is the one running the pick and roll and Mobley they don't want to stash him in the dunker spot because that I mean they will at times but that that causes even more spacing issues when they put him in the corner and you know someone fires him a pass to the corner it's just you know he's not going to shoot he's immediately looking for a handoff to the guy on the wing or to drive into where all the traffic is and it's just it, it just doesn't work that way 
All right, a couple more that I had here. Uh, I mean, Danny has been all, all over this, but the running after makes is just way up the, this year. The, the Pacers are just absolutely insane. They, they were doing it last year too, but they're absolutely insane about that. The Kings last year as well were insane about it. And it's really like, you have the defense at a disadvantage at that point. Like, and a lot of teams are just not used to that. They're used to, okay, we scored. All right, everyone hang their head, point at the guy who wasn't in position, start yelling. And if you can get past that and just be like, hey, all right, yeah, we got scored on, but this is actually an opportunity for us now because this guy just made a layup and he flew into the cameras and we could just come right back and erase your layup with our layup in transition five seconds later. And that's just so demoralizing for the other team. And just to be able to create a fast break out of the other team's makes is incredible and it's it's something that even in the playoffs is hard to do with if you have the commitment to do it it takes a lot of commitment but i think most players would probably say it's easier to run down the floor and score in five seconds than grinding out an entire half court possession so if you have the discipline to do that you have a halberton with his hit head passing or a fox who can push it up court uh it's really a massive advantage yeah i mean there's a reason there was a team that their nickname was seven seconds or less right like that's because that's the easiest time by far to score and uh you know mike brown i can connect this to another uh one of the trends that you had listed in yeah in your list where the kings last season were the second fastest team getting into their offense by like uh you know mere thousands of a second behind only the pacers and this year it switched with the pacers uh the the kings first and the pacers second and one of the things that mike brown said in this coaching clinic when he was working for the warriors and the only reason i know this is because i wrote a story that connects all of these things last year one of the things he said was like we want to get the ball over half court and get into our offense with 21 or 22 seconds left on the shot clock because that just gives us so much more time and defenses aren't ready yet and that is so key to everything that the kings do and everything that the pacers do because you just have like getting the ball over half court and getting into your offense at 20 as opposed to 16 or 14 like you have an extra 6 seconds all of those seconds have a value in points like that's the difference between being able to pump fake drive kick and then shoot or you just have to shoot a contested three in the corner or something like that and that is just so much more valuable to your offense than like walking it up the court and setting up whatever play it is like you just it seconds have a value in points like the point value of time on the shot clock is a real thing and that connects to something that that you had there like backcourt trapping and backcourt pressure is up like to get the ball out of the guy's hands or just to make teams burn seconds off of the shot clock i wrote like a big story about that last year because of this specific concept i remember like when the cameras first came into the arenas and they were sport view back in the day i tried to get this data from them about like which teams pressure in the backcourt most often and who gets into their offense the fastest. And I was watching the Celtics with Avery Bradley and he would just pressure guys deep in the backcourt. And I was like, this is such a big part of the reason that their defense is so good because teams like can't get into their stuff fast enough. And 
all these years later, 10, 11 years later, I got Second Spectrum to add that to their site for me. It took like <laughs> it took a while, but I, I just asked them about it so many times, and they were like, yeah, we're going to figure it out eventually. And they, they did it last year, and I wrote this big story about it, how valuable it is to pressure teams deep in the backcourt and how much time it takes off the shot clock and how much that's worth to your defense in terms of points. Like these things are all connected. These teams that want to fly up the court, the reason is because it helps your offense. And these teams that are pressuring in the backcourt, like you said, is because they know that flying up the court helps your offense. And if you put pressure, that's the best way to make them waste time. The Pacers are kind of at the vanguard of a lot of this stuff both ways. And there's a reason we're going to concentrate on them. You know, when you're averaging uh, 126, 128, when uh, Tari's Halliburton's on the floor, you're probably going to get my uh, attention. And <laughs> so you see a lot of times like teams will try to deny Halliburton in the backcourt. And he, even, even now he's gotten much better, but they're knocking him as a prospect was he doesn't deal with pressure well in the backcourt. He doesn't have, you know, conventionally like the tightest, like lowest handle or anything like that. So if he gets denied in the backcourt, a lot of times he's not fighting to get the ball. He'll take the ball out of bounds. And then, you know, you can easily just get the ball back to him after that. Like it's really hard to deny the guy who just inbounded the ball unless you have like everyone down in the pressuring in the backcourt. Uh, another thing that he'll do is just give it to one of the other guys, uh, whoever's being, you know, if it's Bruce Brown, usually they're hiding their Trey Young or whoever on him. And so then Halliburton will just go set a screen, maybe with a big as well, for whoever's being guarded by Trey Young. And then he'll get the switch and get the matchup that he wants. He can get the ball that way. Uh, that, that's another one that that he'll try as well. So he's got like all the, or, or the other thing that he'll do is just, try to get above the ball like if they have tj mccall on the floor and then just cut to the basket uh, off of that if he's being denied and then he can get the ball coming downhill as well so and then you're seeing like the lakers for example like this is something that's been done since time immemorial like the spurs used to do against steph curry but after a make after a miss just whoever's guarding tyrese halberton just sprints over to get in front of him just to like not let him catch the ball steve nash style while he's already running down the floor like make him come back to the ball even to make him like take one step backwards that's like a big win in that battleground that you're talking about for just getting the ball up court quickly with an advantage and or having more time to execute in the half court as long as you don't let them inbound the ball to him right away while he's on the run and getting himself moving that's a win like you said and then i think that the stuff you mentioned like with halliburton taking the ball out or passing it to one of the other guys and then Halbert and something sets a screen. That's why it's so important to have multiple ball handlers on the court. Um, with, when Bruce Brown can bring the ball up, get a screen from Halliburton, swing it to him, or just attack. Like if Halliburton sets that screen in the backcourt, all of a sudden you're off to the races with, you know, a four on three or a three on two opportunity. And uh, that's, it's, it's so valuable to have another guy out there who is not necessarily a lead ball handler, but can be a ball handler and can run a pick and roll or can bring the ball up the court and get it to the guy that you really want to have it in his hands. Because when they pressure that guy or when they try to deny that guy, you can still get the ball up quickly. Yeah, and another one is, hey, if they have a good guy, a good player who's bringing the ball up, we're going to double team him in the backcourt, like not even to force a turnover, not even to like delay the action, but just to get the ball out of that guy's hands. And one of two things happens at that point. Uh, number one, and you got to try to make him lob it over the guy, right? So if he just, with two guys with high hands come at it, lob it over the guy, and then it's, if you just sprint backwards the moment the ball goes over the guy's head, you can probably get back into position. You might be giving up 
an advantage for say a Bruce Braun coming downhill for a second but usually I found in those circumstances guys are able to get back in front and then one of two things happens either they try to run their offense with someone who's not Tyrese Halberton or yeah Tyrese Halberton has to go get the ball back and now they've wasted you know four seconds five seconds just getting him the ball back to get into whatever it is they're going to do maybe Tyrese Halberton isn't exactly where he wants to be on the floor to run the play that was called um another couple of Pacers things they're running this baseline out of bounds play oh, yeah just, go ahead, sorry. just quickly yeah, on yeah. that one before yeah. you before you keep going in that crazy Hawks Pacers game from earlier this year you saw that exact thing yes. you're talking about where they trapped in the backcourt and they did it a few times in a row and on the last one this was what made them stop doing it where the, the Hawks stopped sending two into the backcourt they sent two guys at him he's like coming up the left side of the court and they send two guys at him and they both have their high hands like you said and he just jumps and throws like a soccer style throwing <laughs> oh, yeah. all, all the way across the court to the, to the right corner and gets a wide open three it was like i've never seen anything like it it was unbelievable and that stopped them from keeping doing that that trapping in the backcourt for the rest of the game yeah and also i think just th- there's generally more of an emphasis on show being able to show different looks throughout a game and having the personnel to execute those different looks because yeah Luca Tyrese Halber like those guys are just too smart if you show them the same thing over and over again that you know that's maybe more of a a playoff thing maybe more of an in-season tournament thing than it will be uh throughout the rest of the regular season but yeah while we're on the Pacers they're running this baseline out of bounds play I'm sure you remember when elevator doors was uh, as we were coming up in this business was the thing that everyone was so excited about you have the guy run through the two bigs and then they they stand together while the guy guarding the shooter can't get through two guys setting the screen and teams got wise to that years ago they would just have the big step out on him if needed but now the Pacers have a counter to that on a baseline out of bounds and that's the key right is that it's a baseline out of bounds because you've got the ball below where the action is taking place so as soon as you they run the elevator doors if they try to counter by having the big step out then the big who just set the screen that's closest to the baseline will just cut right to the rim and get a layup and the the Pacers as I've been watching them recently have gotten like multiple layups out of that action and that is another theme just in general I think that's been I mean this isn't new like it goes back to the triangle offense but just the idea of having the ball below the guy who you want to get the ball to like closer to the rim that is just so powerful because when you have to deal with the possibility of a guy cutting back door then you just you can't cheat to deal with them coming off the main action of the screen and so just and you also just have to generally worry about that guy with the ball too like what if he tries to post up what if he tries to go to a spin like your help defenders are just more attuned the closer the ball is to the basket and so it just makes every action so much harder to deal with if you have the ball below the guy your best player who you're trying to get the ball to yeah on the baseline stuff too you'll see not just from the pacers but you'll see they'll do the same thing with the elevators they'll send the whoever it is the guard like to the corner and then they'll have the big guy closer to the basket screen for the guy uh, who is a little bit further away from the basket and try to get a lob out of that too so it's not just like the cut right in front of you but also like the sort of backdoor lob cut and the the concept of having the ball lower than the guy you're trying to get the ball to i think is an interesting one i remember back in the day when like the jason kid nets the one team that he coached there they would like invert 
their offense and have like Paul Pierce or Darren Williams as the post up guy and have, you know, KG spacing the floor. And that was difficult for opposing teams to deal with because it wasn't something that was all that common. I think teams are now a little bit more used to that, like post up guards and post up wings, but it is more difficult. Like, especially if you have, you know, a center spacing to the perimeter, all of a sudden he's getting a back screen and a cut from the perimeter. That's not something that centers typically deal with. So, and you have to get that sort of action. You need to get that guy out to the perimeter and you need to get someone else underneath him, so to say. And that does create a different kind of advantage than you might typically be used to defending against. Yeah. The thunder with Josh Giddy do a lot of stuff like that, even on a sideline out of bounds. Uh, the, the wizard of Slav is uh, the uh, John Hollinger, Kevin Pelton mashup uh, has now called him, but I mean, they'll, they'll even, he's able to even, he's such a good passer. That he's able to kind of create that advantage, even from a sideline out of bounds. Uh, and another thing I've noticed too, is you'll see teams run these back screens actually the kings actually did this in the playoffs last year against the warriors especially against teams that are denying and especially if you have the ball below where the action is taking place you know you might have split cut action like that's been around for a long time obviously now the warriors really popularize that and so that would normally involve okay one guy goes back door one guy goes uh, to try to get a jumper the other thing that's happening now if you switch that action is you set a back screen off the ball for the first guy the first guy goes back door but then the guy who set the back screen also has inside position and normally you would be trying to topside that right because you're the idea is you're going to take away that second guy after he sets the back screen he's going to pop out instead they also have that second guy go back door right behind the first guy <laughs> as well and you know obviously the the first guy went back door that guy the guy who's guarding him like can't help because he has to take away that first back door maybe if he's smart when the first back door hasn't worked he can turn around and get the second guy but you just kind of run out of guys to help on the back door and particularly that first guy who sets the back screen he if you switch it he's always going to have inside position on the second guy to go back door as well and so the kings they were setting those that screening action like 40 feet from the basket with like you know kevin herter and malik monk or uh maybe it was keegan murray as well and they got the warriors on that a couple times in that playoff series because they were really having trouble getting any kind of the backdoor stuff with sabonis so this is a way to actually get sabonis below the action and then open up so much more room for that back cutting yeah, the, the multiple guys following the same sort of path, I think, is an interesting one. This was an NBA I saw somebody post on Twitter, some college team, where it wasn't the same kind of backdoor thing, but it was like, you know, the like the baseline out of bounds play where you'll line the guys up in sort of a straight line across the free throw line, yeah. and then you'll bring one guy around a loop and then send a, a guy right after him. They did that, but with three guys. So they had two guys fake the loop. Everybody jumped the second one, and the third <laughs> guy was wide open. Um, and uh, I can't remember which team it was or who posted the clip on Twitter, but I was like uh, – I was on the subway and just sort of scrolling things, and I saw that happen, and I was like, oh – that makes so much sense. Everybody does the second guy, and they just that second guy was a fake too. And I was like, that's great. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary, we believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. 
It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, so what other big trends have you been noticing? Big or small. Could be small, too. We're, we're, nothing is too granular yeah, uh, on this show. <laughs> I'll stay with the big theme. It's not necessarily a big trend, but it does involve big men, which is uh, more four or five pick and rolls. Um Forward center pick and rolls, which they track at second spectrum, are higher than ever. This year, eight of them per 100 possessions. It was 6.4 last year and 6.0 the year before. Um, Fred Katz wrote a story about this a few weeks ago where after Julius Randle's like, really tough start, they started running more Randall Robinson pick and rolls. Before Mitch got hurt, which was like a, about a week ago at this point, there were more Randall Robinson pick and rolls this year than at any time since Randall signed with the Knicks. And obviously we're only like 20 games into the season. So that is pretty crazy. Um, Michael Porter Jr. and Nikola Jokic have run almost as many pick and rolls this year with Porter as the ball handler and Jokic as the screener as they did all of last season. Giannis and Brooke Lopez are way more often both this year and last year than in their first three years. We're getting like Zion Valanciunas pick and rolls, Jeremy Grant and DeAndre Ayton. Um, when the when the Wolves are with their second unit that they stagger Mike Conley and Kyle Anderson, they'll run Anderson, Gobert, pick and rolls. And then, you know, J- uh, Jalen Williams and Chet Holmgren. Like, there's just so much more of this than there was over the last few years. And I think that the, the, the Anderson-Gobert part is interesting because when I was on Danny's podcast a little bit earlier in the season, we were talking about Minnesota, and I was thinking of ways that they could loosen up the offense a little bit when it's Towns and Gobert on the court together. I was like, they should run some Towns Gobert pick and roll. This was right after Fred's story about uh, Randall and Robinson. I was like, they should do this with Towns and Gobert. And then I looked into it and I was like, oh, they're doing it with Anderson and Gobert. <laughs> yeah, power power forward. I've talked about this a lot uh, when we do our power forward rankings that in so many ways, who you have at power forward really kind of determines the character of your team uh, where I, I think the trend for a long time was, all right, we're going to move move to you know your combo forward was the most prized sort of player right like the traditional power forward your Blake Griffin that's kind of out of vogue at this point and you know your Harrison Barnes your KD at the four like that's that's like the amazing thing if you can play LeBron at the four that's that's fantastic and it does seem that there's been a little bit of a trend the opposite way some of that is just because hey your best offensive player your second best offensive player is a traditional power forward it's the Zion Williamson it's a Julius Randle that's you know there's only so much playmaking and scoring to go around in the league and so you got to get that out of that position and yeah you might have some defensive limitations that come out of that or other teams are doing the all right we're going to play Evan Mobley and just try to be bigger at power forward to get these this fantastic defense rather than to get our our offense better and then you also still have that kind of more combo forward type of player uh you know your Nets your Hawks your Celtics uh, who coincidentally the first three teams in the alphabet as I looked at all the the death charts uh, all have that sort of player (laughs) uh your Hornets so it's still but it's kind of about 50 50 right now like I I think there are some who probably felt like well hey the the trend is going to be we're going to go with this like combo forward type every team is going to have that at the four and that that trend seems to have arrested it at least as you kind of realize like hey there aren't that many of those guys to go around and you can also get some advantages by having a different kind of player at power forward a more traditional sort of player either on offense or defense yeah and a lot of those teams that are playing that sort of combo four type they just seem small when they play against obviously these teams that you know to connect to one of the things that you had in there these teams that play two big men like this has been an issue i was listening to 
I think it was uh, was Simmons and Doc, and they were talking about the Warriors and how they just seem so small against other teams now. And obviously, they were at the forefront of like the small ball revolution, and they they do seem really small when they play against these teams with two bigs. Now that was part of what was happening with them against Minnesota when they got in that first Draymond fight, um, <laughs> and they were just sort of getting pushed around inside. Um, and I do think these teams, like you can sort of not necessarily bully that specific guy, but if you're small overall, you can figure out a way to just use your size advantage, whether it's hitting the glass or just, you know, swarming them with, with length on the other end of the court. There's just so many different ways, like all else equal coaches would prefer to have the biggest guys possible on the floor. The reason that they put smaller guys out there is because you need as much skill as possible out there. That was something that D'Antoni always talked about in relation to small ball. He would be like, it's not small ball it's skill ball we're getting more skilled players out there on the court and when you have big guys who are skilled that's preferable to small guys who are skilled for the most part and you can sort of press that advantage against teams that are playing those combo forward guys this is another thing that i I think is kind of interesting to me i think and this this is anecdotal so you you may have a, a different thought i found that i think switching when you're worried about the big is actually maybe done more often now and switching when you're worried about the small is done less often now and particularly switching when you're going with this approach of also having a rim protector who's behind the play like to me dealing with an Embiid or a Jokic nothing really works that well but that's probably the best is if you can just have a couple of guys who are like strong try to get underneath them but then you also have a rim protector beyond the play so we're going to switch we're not going to let you get the pure advantage coming downhill against nobody uh and then we're also if we do switch all right it's going to take a little more time we'll try and front you in the post and then we've got our rim protector still waiting there if you do try to back down so the best you're going to do against our smaller guy is all right you can take a jumper over him but we're not going to let you get all the way to the rim and because we'll have another shot blocker there so i I think that's and and because those guys are kind of running the league right now and they've been one two and mvp for what the last three years now and they probably will be again this year i'm thinking um that's a how to deal with those guys is kind of at the vanguard of the strategy right now and i think that's the best that teams have been able to come up with uh because even when you have a guy who can defend the guy one-on-one in the post okay well then you just put him in pick and roll and how do you deal with that yeah and i think i think that makes sense and i think you know not those guys specifically but generally big men probably aren't dealing with when you send help as well as the guards are so it's like if you're willing to switch when the big man is the guy you're worried about, you can send help and worry about it a little bit less than if you have to send help Great to point. like a big man defending a guard, yeah. especially because post-up penetration is so much different in terms of the way it threatens your defense than perimeter penetration. Like when a guy is coming with a full steam towards the basket and he is facing the basket, it's such a different threat than when a guy is like backing down and sort of inching his way there. It, it just causes such a different type of chaos to a defense and the help can come from different places and it can come at a different speed and you can make different rotations out of it when you're defending against a post-up than when you're defending against a drive. Yeah, well, and particularly when the guy who's posting up is not Nikola Jokic <laughs> because you double right. him, you're going to be dead. But yeah, everyone else, I think at this point, you can still some what get away with it at least um you know this is an interesting when you had this in there 
I had anecdotally noticed it seemed like teams were playing less zone this year. You had in here that you thought that teams are been better against the zone. I would imagine those two things are related to one another. Yeah, I think so. You're seeing, I think, less of the, like, we're going to go zone for an extended stretch. You will still see teams go for it, like if the other team is just crushing them and you need to figure out something to throw them off or when they have a specific matchup where it's like this team is not great at shooting. But I wasn't even watching this game last night, but I saw clips from Steve Jones on Twitter of the Suns running zone offense against the Nets last night. And it was just like they stashed their two best shooters on the same side of the court. And it was Durant on the wing and Beal in the corner. And Booker just swung the ball to KD, who swung it to Beal, who swung it back to KD. He took two dribbles into the lane and passed it to the opposite side to Booker. And it was like a wide the heck open three. And it's just like they just they just know what to do more than than when teams were first started playing a ton of zone because when they first started debuting all of these zones, like you weren't allowed to play zone in the NBA for a very long time. And then you were, but teams wouldn't play like a true zone. They would do, you know, like the strong side overload Tibbs kind of stuff. When teams first started running like real zones, I wrote a story about this like five, six years ago at this point when, you know, like the Heat were doing it, the Nets were doing it, and a couple other teams were doing it. And I remember talking to Pop before a game that they played against the Nets because they were one of the teams that was doing a bunch of zone. And he was like, yeah, offenses just get in mud when they try to go against zones because we haven't seen it. And it's like, I think teams are just better against it now. So I do think that that makes sense that you had sort of anecdotally come up with that, that teams aren't running it as much. Yeah, well, the, Don Nelson, uh, I'm guessing probably not a loyal listener, but uh, he, we will give him some credit of, of for, for that uh, 61 win Mavs team back in uh, 2002 oh, yeah. that started 14 and 0. They played, they played a lot of zone. They're really kind of the first ones to do it, but yeah, no one else really picked it up extensively. I think we're seeing it most often maybe as a change up, particularly as an ATO, just as a way to take the other team out of the play that they set up in the huddle. Uh, and I think, you know, the smart coaches are being like, all right, hey, if they're in zone, we're going to do this instead. And I do think also there's uh, an opportunity to just run set plays against the zone as well, because you can so much more easily predict where everyone's going to be and what they're going to do in a zone and what the, you know, all right, we get the ball here. The defense is going to do this. Um, and then the other thing too, it's just what's the, the, uh, the death knell for the zone is you get the ball at the free throw line and in college the three-point line isn't as far out and the center can just kind of hang out in the middle of the lane there's no defense at three seconds so it's just easier to pack it in more make it harder to get to that zone maybe you can get some turnovers in the nba the center just can't be close enough and so if you can send a cutter in from the opposite wing to the free throw line like that guy is basically always going to be open or you're going to give up a a wide open three if you have the guard take that away so it's really is if you get used to it and you kind of get out of this feeling of like hey you know our best player isn't getting the the ball like we're quote-unquote out of rhythm and just be like no we're actually getting great shots you get guys used to the shots as well like the nba is such a rhythm sport where it's like all right well maybe i'm not as used to taking my three-pointer when the ball comes from here in the pass against the zone and uh it just kind of doesn't feel right and maybe you're gonna miss or something like yeah the more experience you get against it the better you're gonna be so it doesn't surprise me that uh that trend maybe is starting to decelerate or even reverse yeah, as soon as you get the ball to the free throw line like you said like all of a sudden you have a two-on-one against 
Like if you're at whichever elbow you at, you have a two on one against the low man in that corner. If he stands where he is, the guy in the corner comes back door. And if he jumps up, then it's an immediate pass to the corner. And it's just like, as soon as you get it there, it's, it's game over in terms of being able to prevent a good shot. And I would imagine that like a few years ago, teams were not really practicing. Well, most teams don't practice period, but teams, uh, you know, coming into the season, we're probably not installing like a zone offense in training camp. I would imagine they spend at least a little bit of time at this point. Like if we see a zone, this is what we're going to do. And everybody knows what they're doing now. Yeah. And also I, I found the, haven't seen as much of the kind of box in one type of stuff that came into vogue after the, the 2019 finals. Have, haven't seen quite as much of that stuff either. I mean that we may see more of that again in the playoffs as you just, run into teams that are like well we're out of ideas we're gonna try this now (laughs) that's uh that could certainly happen i wouldn't be surprised to see a team go to that against indiana if they're in the playoffs like have whoever it is just on halliburton all 94 feet and zone up everybody else like it's tougher to do with buddy healed out there but if he's not on the court then i think it's an interesting look like even benedict matherin obviously is a good shooter but it's it's not the same as buddy healed and like bruce brown has been over the last couple seasons like 36 37 percent from three although obviously teams will kind of let him shoot and miles turner is down on like the low 30s obi toppin is not necessarily someone you're scared of shooting like i wouldn't be surprised if some team uses that as a change up against indiana at some point yeah well and it's also zone works better against indiana because you score plenty against them too like most coaches only want to go to a zone after a make i think there's a feeling that it's just too hard to get into it after a miss which i don't know that i necessarily subscribe that's why you'll see it like with atos and free throws yeah yeah i i mean i actually think that going zone after a miss would in some ways make more sense and particularly against a transition team because i've always felt like the biggest key to transition defense is getting your bigs back and so this forces your bigs because sometimes your bigs will be like hey you know it's, I, i'm just gonna run with my man right as long as i've i've made sure that my man isn't gonna beat me down the floor like i've done my job whereas against the if with the zone you're like no your job is to get back there and defend the room immediately and so because the big is important not to necessarily guard his own man but just to like prevent penetration like because i mean most guards in the nba if there's no big behind them if you're just a guard going one-on-one against another guard like he's probably gonna beat him and get to the basket um a couple other small things before we had a couple other big ones we wanted to hit on uh you noted that you think the teams are going for the two for one a little bit less i can't say that i've noticed that actually but i i will keep my eye out uh, for that one i don't know that it's necessarily going for it less as the league as a whole but i do see more teams that are willing to pass them up and i think that so last night i was watching uh Knicks jazz and there was one quarter where the Knicks took their shot with like 34 seconds left thinking they were going to get a two for one and then they didn't because Colin Sexton came up and shot at 30 seconds and it was like (laughs) we tried to go two for one and we didn't even get it so there are teams that are just like you have to shoot at 30 and if you shoot at 30 you're not really getting a real second possession anyway because if they shoot at six you're just kind of running it up the court and trying to get something on a scramble so it's there are some teams that will just be like we're not going to go for it depending on how much time is left on the clock yeah i have noticed anecdotally that teams are willing to go a little bit earlier like right at the end of the quarter just to allow time for an offensive rebound that if you take the shot with five there's hopefully uh, unless you turn it over no way that the other teams can be able to come back down you know you've got the time in the air and so you might as well just take that chance for an offensive rebound uh this is one i've watched two teams in the last week get burned by that though yeah where they took the shot with like seven seconds left and gave up a basket yeah no well 
well and that's like pushing it up in that situation like players are kind of programmed to just be like all right that's the last shot of the quarter and not get back and then they just get beat um this is another one too that i've seen this is a, a mark mark dignall i've seen do this but there's plenty of other teams too doubling in the last shot of the quarter situation you know with maybe 15 seconds left in the half where you're just trying to one team is trying to dribble the air out of the ball to get the last shot and they'll double to just say like hey maybe a we can force a turnover or worst case scenarios hey maybe they get a little bit better of a shot but the math is still in our favor enough if we get another possession going back now my question is who's the first coach who's going to have the balls to do that when the game is tied at the end of the game not just the end of the quarter yeah, I don't know if we see it at the end of the game. Um, yeah, maybe I, if I don't it's think like a, a pretty. I don't big... think anyone's going to have the balls to do that. I, I think it's just it's like, yeah. but like if the math works at the end of the quarter, like why doesn't it work at the end of the game? Yeah, I think it's just the fact that the game is tied and like. Yeah. Like if it's tied at the end of the game, you might not have a chance to come back and win it. Whereas if you do it at the end of a quarter, like you still have, you know, one or two or three quarters left to make up for whatever happens in that situation. So it does change the math slightly. But I do think it's an interesting play because most of the time they'll give the ball to whoever they want to take the last shot. Yeah. And if you go and double him, he's not taking the last shot. You know, and if it's just the end of a quarter, like if you can get, you know, just to use the Pacers again, like if you can get, you know, Bruce Brown to take the shot or Miles Turner to take the shot as opposed to Halliburton, even if it's a little bit of a better shot, I think you probably consider that a win defensively. I don't watch that much European basketball, but or and FIBA, you know, I only watch it occasionally. But there was a time, I mean, and our international listeners probably know this better than me, but there was a time when it was not uncommon for teams to foul the other team in a tie game situation when they're trying to run the clock down. Wow. That seems in a tie game yeah so that you so all right they might make one out of two and now you have a chance to win the game i mean a a lot of the math of that is based and i mean i don't know that i necessarily think that that's a great idea i mean maybe it depends on who the free throw shooter is but uh i think that's that's one where a lot of the math is like okay well you're still if the game is tied you're still only 50 percent to win in overtime right like that's I, I think most guys there's a feeling like hey all right well hey the game's tied like let's just we've got a you know the, that last shot is what a 30 35 percent shot or something and so hey you know we got a 65 percent chance of going into overtime where we have a 50 percent chance of winning <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. I, I mean again I'm, I'm not necessarily even advocating for it but i do think like if you think the math works out for you at the end of the third quarter like your the the math in theory would work out for you at the end of the fourth quarter uh, as well uh this is well here yeah why, why are you doing i had another one but i i've uh it's your turn <laughs> yeah um so the three-point attempt rate has stabilized mm. over the last few years if you go back to 2016 that's the obviously like the 73 and 9 warrior season uh 28.5 of shots league-wide were threes then it took three years by 2020 it was 38.4 percent so it jumped 10 percentage points between 2016 and 2020 but since 2021 it's been 39.2 percent 39.9 percent 38.7 percent and 39 percent so basically we've been between 38 and a half and 40 percent for five straight years now after it jumped from 28 to 38 over a three-year span and obviously like the the three-point revolution is a, a thing that we are and have been going through but i think one of the ways that this has happened that the way that it stabilized i think more teams are willing to not send quite as much help 
against drives so that they can guard the three-point line um they're, they're still figuring out ways to protect the rim whether it's with with drop coverage or things like that or sending someone off of a non-shooter but I think that those things are connected, maybe not helping quite as much or quite as aggressively against drives to not give up quite so many threes. Because I think uh, Seth Partner has talked about this a lot. Like you can control the the volume of threes your opponent takes. You probably can't control um, how many they hit. So not sending quite as much help or not sending as aggressive of help is a way that you can sort of stabilize the volume of threes that your opponent is taking. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting one. And then also, I don't think, uh, no, like those hardened rocket scenes were getting up pretty close to 50% of their shots as threes. I don't think we've seen anyone quite at that level. Like the the Utah, the Mitchell Gobert Utah teams in the final years, they were maybe more in kind of the 44% of shots as threes type of range, I, I think. So you can correct me if I'm wrong though. You might know it better than me, but I, I don't think we you felt like, oh, those teams are like on the vanguard. Everyone's going to be doing this. But instead, I mean, part of that is i don't think that a lot of these teams can generate as many threes and they just it's really tough to come up with that level of personnel that they had with you know an eric gordon and a ryan anderson and harden obviously is the the guy who's going to create a lot of threes they're playing a lot of five out so yeah i'm not, I'm not sure that that's uh that we are necessarily going back to a, a team like that necessarily yeah there are three teams above uh 45 percent this year yeah. it's boston who they swapped out um Marcus Smart and Robert Williams for Drew Holiday and Chris Epps Porzingis. So that'll sort of raise your three-point attempt rate. It's Dallas, where it's like all Luca creating, and if it's not him, it's a three. And then Sacramento, where it's, you know, Sabonis in the post or Fox on a drive or a three from everybody else. So those are the three teams that are really pushing into like that, you know, hardened Rockets range, like you mentioned. And everybody else is more in like a regular kind of range of you know it's uh from the from the magic at 34 percent to the warriors at 44 percent we should probably talk about offensive rebounding being kind of back on the way up now uh i think particularly from the corners we've seen that i, I talked to an executive over the summer who was kind of lamenting that his team wasn't doing it enough and he's like well you know coaches are always like yeah you can do both right you can crash into the paint and then you can uh then close out to the river like it, it's possible to do it but coaches need to also say that about offensive rebounding and getting back uh, <laughs> as well and uh, i do think that a, a lot of teams are kind of vulnerable to that and you know there are a lot of players particularly other than like big centers who don't necessarily have that in their dna but you know if you're like an athletic wing even if you're standing out at the three-point line there's plenty of time while the ball's in the air to get into position to maybe go get a rebound uh the way that teams have to rotate so much that they have to cover the three-point line it's really hard to box those guys out necessarily and because offensive rebounding is kind of been de-emphasized like some of those box out fundamentals maybe uh, are not as common now so uh, there is and of course if you take more shots from floater range more shots at the rim that opens up more offensive rebounding opportunities as well so I, I do think that it had gone too far in the direction of avoiding offensive rebounding and particularly for teams that don't shoot the three as well like hey you might as well try to make it up on the offensive glass for sure i think uh mo dekeel wrote a really good story about that particular offensive rebounding from the corner strategy earlier in the season at uh i think it was at the athletic he does like the x's and mo's um i think you've seen it 
over the last couple of years with certain guys like Pat Connaughton does it a lot in Milwaukee. I think Dante DiVincenzo did it when he was in Milwaukee. And then last year in Golden State and this year in New York, there are a few guys. And it's, it's interesting that it is like really athletic guys who are often stationed in the corners are the guys that will do it a lot. Um, and I think it is a good opportunity because there aren't as many good rebounding teams. I don't think like there are teams where you can crash and you just won't get boxed out and you get yourself an extra possession. It takes away a transition opportunity, potentially if they have to send more guys to the defensive glass, as opposed to having somebody run out there, there are a lot of merits to having that specific guy, especially since he's probably going to be the last guy back down the court. Anyway, if he goes and chases the ball, there's, there's a lot of merit to doing that. So there's two things that I I think we can finish on, on here. One general, actually, I guess there's a a third of these two, but one of those is just the value of, of getting the ball at the elbow not like the nba elbow which is really almost more kind of even the slot more kind of just you know five feet beyond the elbow like actually at the elbow is really really useful and of course the the nuggets are at the forefront of this because it's so much easier to make a pass for a layup to a guy ducking in or going back door if you're at the elbow than if you're at the three-point line somewhat adjacent to the elbow like to just be that nine feet closer to where you need to make the pass and the windows are so small in the nba that if you can like get a quick back door you can really get a better much better angle for a bounce pass too if you're at the elbow uh and you know that quick duck in uh, as well particularly if it's a big who's at the elbow who can pass just to me getting the ball there in position just can start so much for you and that's there's a reason that guys always pick up fouls trying to deny that or whatever uh that is just so massive and i mean that is the foundation of the play that kind of has been sweeping sweeping the nation uh that <laughs> that denver nuggets uh back screen uh into dho with gordon murray and Jokic. yeah just quickly before the the gordon yeah. murray Jokic one or or porter murray Jokic one one of those like the the stuff you mentioned about getting the ball to the elbow i think connects back to um the Embiid stuff we talked about to the beginning when you get it hit to him there and Tobias Harris ducks in. I think those are connected this year. Tobias is having a good post-up and isolation season. He's generally getting smaller defenders, and when they get the ball to Embiid there, he just has sort of a free duck-in from one of the corners to come in there. I think that's connected. And then the the Nuggets back screen stuff, we talked about this before we jumped on, but there's a lot of talk, obviously, about how the the NBA is a copycat league, and a lot of teams will sort of try to ape whatever the, the the most recent champion does in terms of like team building or playing style. You, de- you don't necessarily see it with specific plays or specific actions, but the Nuggets use that back screen into a handoff action with Murray and Jokic to like absolutely annihilate the Lakers defense in the Western Conference Finals last year. And I think like everybody in the league saw that and was like, okay, we're taking it. Yeah, I mean, it's inc- it's incredibly difficult to defend if you have uh, a really good shooter or scorer who's setting a back screen for a guy who has a lot of size who can go get a lob i mean you have to respect that to begin with and particularly when you have a great passer like Jokic, where any slight advantage that's gleaned from that initial back screen like you're just other than switching it or just like a more traditional help on the back screen there's really no you got to take away that first thing or it's a dunk 
And so, I mean, to me, the best actions have always flowed out of that, right? It's like, not only are we just going to kind of, all right, we're going to just dummy cut through our UCLA back screen and now we're going to get to the real action. It's like, no, you actually take that seriously when the defense has to honor something right at the basket, it opens up everything else. And then when you have Jokic as a great passer, Murray sets the back screen, you have to help, and then uh, he can run right off of that uh, to, I mean, I mean, your best outcome usually is going to be like a pretty open Jamal Murray jump shot out of that action. There's really not much way to do with that. Now, they have probably the best personnel in the league to run it with, uh, of course, but certainly you can be very effective uh, with other players as well. And nobody defends the handoff action well to begin with, but if you do and have like the big guy jump out on the guy getting the handoff, then especially if you have like a playmaking big, like you're giving that guy a free lane to get to the rim. Like it's there's no good way to defend it, really. There's one more I thought of, uh, which uh, as we came through this, and that's just overall the value of strength and i used to think like okay you know if a bigger guy puts the floor puts the ball on the floor against a smaller guy like yeah the smaller guy could just move his feet and cut him off it's not necessarily an advantage but the way the game is called now being bigger and stronger than the guy who's guarding you, you used to think oh yeah like the advantage there is it'll go in the post and it'll post him up no if if you're trying to guard someone one-on-one just straight up off the dribble if you're that much smaller than the guy like you just can't like he's just gonna go right through you like he's got longer strides and also you're basically allowed to use your forearm as a battering ram now like that's just such a common move to just pick the ball up with one hand forearm out or or forearm out as you're starting your gather with or finishing up your dribble this guy is just not strong enough he gets knocked backwards and then you europe's euro step into a layup and while i loathe that you're allowed to use your forearm as a battering ram and because that to me is kind of not basketball just like running someone over like that like the reality is if you have a strength advantage in a matchup facing the basket that's like an emergency now for the defense in a way i don't think it necessarily was years ago i love that everybody um i I love that you called it out not that i love the that you're able to get away with it but everybody in the league is able to get away with that except for jason tatum who gets called for it like yeah 75 of the time i don't know what it is about they crack down on the in theory of like oh well if you uh extend your elbow you'll get called for it now and they, they still could do better on that but you like so what guys would do is they just like okay like imagine like you're putting your forearm up to defend a guy in the post so you just put your forearm out there you don't bend it but you basically just run into the guy holding your forearm in front of him in front of you and knock him backwards yeah all of the guys that are like um you know the the deceleration drivers yeah. like luca uh jalen brunson um, I'm trying to think uh, of some other guys in that sort of vein, but all, all of those guys, they have that, that same move or even De'Aaron Fox does this now too. And he's obviously is so fast, but he's able to get that sort of deceleration and like a little bit of a shoulder nudge. And, and I think you're noticing the strength stuff, even with guys that you wouldn't necessarily think, like I was watching Celtics Cavs the other night and Porzingis just like went right through Jared Allen, like three different times in the fourth quarter. And it's just like Porzingis isn't even a guy that's necessarily built. Like you think he's going to physically overpower somebody, but if you just have more leverage or more strength in your legs or your shoulders than the guy guarding you, you could get so much deeper than it might necessarily seem based on like if 
if you don't have the best handle or if you're not necessarily a guy who's going to drive to begin with. I think it's part of that, that's probably part of you know Julius Randle's success too. Just he has those ridiculously strong shoulders and he can do that sort of nudge to get himself where he wants to go. Yeah, well, I mean that uh, that quarterfinal game where Giannis and Randle were just like taking turns disemboweling each <laughs> other in the stomach, and, it, and it's like like you shouldn't be able to move. Like there are certain guys you shouldn't be able to move, right? Like and like you know when I was growing up playing, or even if you watch film going back like 15 years ago, like it just wasn't like people. It's just legal to just anytime you're dribbling, you just put your forearm up, right? And it's like, all right, the guy tries to like, so basically you now have an extra two feet of space where the guy can't get close to your body. He can't knock the ball away. Uh, and, you know, it's one thing, like I always thought like, oh, getting angry at like guys lowering the shoulder, like that's, that I always got mad at because like, how are you supposed to drive to the basket without lowering your shoulder? Like you're supposed to get low. Like that's just your shoulder is there. And that like, that to me is okay, right? Like your shoulder, the guy can still reach it and maybe touch the ball a little bit. It's easier to kind of take an offensive foul on the shoulder as well. But once you extend that radius, even another two feet. And so there's really no chance to knock the ball away when the guy can also just ward you off with his forearm like that. I, I really think it's something that the league needs to take a look at because it's not something that was kind of legal for a long time. And everyone, you know, everyone does it now. Like every trainer is worth it. salt is saying, hey, like, yeah, get the get that forearm up, pick the ball up, knock the guy backwards. And you can either go for a Euro step or you've just created a ton of space to, to shoot, you know, a 12 footer from the dot line um anyway yeah so i'm, I'm just, glad you're just to, to bring this one. full yeah just to bring this full circle yeah. uh the pacers who gave up like nine thousand points to Giannis last night doing a lot of exactly what you're talking about just signed james johnson so you know that's uh that, that's one sort of way to deal with that kind of thing <laughs> all right man well this is a, a ton of fun i'm sorry i kept you for so long but this is uh we, we oh, had man, a- this is like this is what i have fun doing so like this is what i would be doing anyway is thinking and talking about this kind of stuff so i was happy to come yeah on. so jared Subsack is last night in basketball extremely reasonably priced i, I recommend particularly for those of us who uh, don't have time to watch every game it's a great resource so please check that out and we will talk to y'all next week here on dunked on uh, don't forget to put in your questions on uh i guess it's still called twitter uh we were asking for some submissions there for the eastern conference 1560 so if you have a question about a specific team in the east danny and i will take those on sunday so we will talk to you all then so jared and i were talking after the show and we thought it would be a great idea to set up a coupon code for dunked on listeners for last night in basketball he's actually offering 30 percent off and it's already extremely reasonably priced so i highly recommend you check that that out go to www.lastnightinbasketball.com slash duncan that link will be in the show notes that's www.lastnightinbasketball.com slash duncan reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 